0: including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Kane, Kinway, Hefe, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Antonio, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. If you would like to help support the Pirate History Podcast, If you would like a personal RSS feed with early access to all of our episodes and exclusive access to our patron-only episodes, much like the episode on the Popish Plot we just released on Patreon, and if you would like access to our Patreon rewards, you can do so at patreon.com slash piratehistorypodcast. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Coffee has an interesting history. I love coffee, and I love the history of beverages in general. Rum, ale, wine, tea, they all play a major role in our story. Coffee, though, holds a special place in my heart. Coffee originated in the Muslim world. A few sultans attempted to keep it secret. They forbade the trade in coffee, but that was never going to happen. There were European pirates and barbary who didn't much care about Ottoman trade policies and saw the potential benefits of trading in illicit coffee. By the late 1500s, the Republic of Venice was trading in coffee full-time. Remember when we talked about the tensions between Venice and the Pope? That was the major schism in the 16th century, and coffee was actually something of a weapon in that conflict. Coffee was considered a Muslim drink, or a heathen drink, or even, occasionally, the devil's drink. It was decried as sinful, and a number of popes denounced the drinking of coffee. It didn't see a vibrant trade in the Catholic world, not in Spain, or France, or parts of Italy. That would, of course, change during the reign of Pope Clement II, but for the time it was a Protestant drink, and Venice was happy to aid that. Protestant German princes were happy to import coffee, and once England went Protestant, they embraced the beverage whole cloth. In 1654, the Queen's Lane Coffee House opened its doors. That was the first English coffee house to open that is still in operation today. By the time of King Charles II, there were over 3,000 coffee shops in operation in England. The coffee shops were the cultural hub in English society, but before long they became a symbol of Protestant opposition. They were centers of political discontent. And by the time King James II took the throne, coffee shops were filled with his fiercest opponents. And King James, in a singularly draconian move shut them down this deeply offended the opposition but it was the least of king james offenses as we will see this is episode 117 an auspicious day we've discussed in some depth exactly why james ii was so unpopular when he took the throne There's no need to go into his Catholic bona fides again. But we should talk about temperament. Specifically, the temperament necessary in a monarch. I find myself respecting, even occasionally admiring, James II, despite the fact that I disagree with him on almost everything he thought and did. James saw the world as starkly black and white. He saw it as divided between the monarchist forces of order and good, and the Republican forces of chaos and evil. And, you know, I don't like any of that. But James was gruff. He was honest and he was stubborn. He was the kind of guy that stuck to his guns. He was heard to say, quote, I will make no concession. My father made concessions, and he was beheaded, end quote. And those are admirable qualities for, you know, cowboys but they are awful traits for a ruler. James never understood the arts of listening or compromise. I don't know how much they would have helped James anyway. His older brother held the country together through compromise, but James might never have even had that option. You know, what compromise could he offer when the opposition was opposed to his religion and his legitimacy in the first place? And today's story... Well, it's not really the story of King James II. He's the central figure around which it is all placed, but really this is the story of the opposition to his rule. The coronation of King James II took place about a month after his brother's death, and he wasted no time in securing control over England. In the wake of the exclusion crisis, the most powerful opposition members, the Whig leadership, mostly fled England. James capitalized on that. He forced new charters on 99 English boroughs. And those charters were intended to, well, not exactly to exclude Whig MPs from running, but basically to exclude Whig MPs from running for Parliament. When the new Parliament finally met, it was stacked with Tory members of Parliament. Thus, it's called the Loyal Parliament. James looked poised to be a prosperous and powerful king. That's, you know, what happens when you remove all of the opposition from the government. James was free to do whatever he wished. However, when you remove the opposition from your government, unless you kill all of them, they don't just go away. They continue to oppose them, only now they don't have the restraints of... position. And so we need to introduce a few characters here. I've danced around mentioning the first two until now, but many of you already know who they are. Their story begins with Charles I, the king who lost the English Civil War. Charles II and James II were his sons, but his eldest daughter, Mary Stuart, married the Prince of Orange in the Netherlands. Their son... The son of Mary Stuart and the Prince of Orange was William III, Prince of Orange. He was the leader of the Dutch, and through his father's line, he was the great-grandson of William the Silent, the father of the Dutch Republic. Through his mother's line, he was the cousin of King James II of England and the grandson of Charles I. Following so far? Good. William III, Prince of Orange, married his first cousin. King James II's daughter, Mary Stuart. And you know, that's got to be weird, right? Your mother and your wife were both named Mary Stuart of England. Your wife is your mother's niece. And you can begin to see the complications here. William had a claim to the English throne through his mother. You know, it wasn't as strong as James' claim, but the connection was there. Then he married the daughter of the heir to the English throne. And since the Stuarts' whole claim to the throne was based around, well, originally there was Queen Elizabeth, but their claim was based around Mary, Queen of Scots, the female line of succession through the Stuarts was very valid. And James was the rightful king, but now two people who had their own very strong claims to the throne, two people who would probably go on to have a child with a double claim to the English throne, they were currently sitting in a position of power just across the English Channel. Last time we talked about Anthony Ashley, Earl of Shaftesbury, head of the Whig opposition to King James. He was currently sitting in the court of William III, Prince of Orange. Shaftesbury, along with William and Mary, were waiting with open arms for all of the English opposition to sail across the Channel and join their English government in exile. Now that exiled court was rallying behind a rival claimant to the throne. Now not William, nor was it Mary or Shaftesbury. It was King James' illegitimate nephew, James. The rival James was the eldest illegitimate son of Charles the Second who had been made Duke of Monmouth. Monmouth, as we're going to call him from now on, was an accomplished soldier. He was an officer at this point, and he'd fought in three wars under his father's rule. He was present alongside his Uncle James when they were fighting naval battles in the East Indies, alongside a number of sailors who would go on to become buccaneers. More than that, though, James of Monmouth was a protestant. He was a bastard, so his claim to the throne was not strong, but that didn't stop the Whigs from rallying behind him. In the eyes of many English Protestants, his bastardy was less delegitimizing than King James' Catholicism. In fact, before his father had died, many of the Whigs had been preparing to put Monmouth on the throne. But James was in a better position and better prepared and there was even an argument that Monmouth's mother and father had been married back in France well before King Charles took the throne, which isn't impossible. There's no real evidence to back it up, but it did bring Monmouth's support, the fact that he might have been legitimate. If Monmouth had won the throne, I wonder if history would accept the fact that Monmouth was legitimate. The Monmouth plotters were organizing a rebellion well before James was crowned, but they weren't alone. The Netherlands were hosting yet another group of rebels against King James. These were Scottish rebels intending to supplant King James on the throne of Scotland. And Monmouth appears to have been fine with that. He was only after the throne of England, I think probably because he really wasn't Scottish. You know, the Stuarts were growing less and less Scottish with every passing generation. Plus, if James, King James, had the ability to call on Scottish troops, Monmouth would have no hope in taking England from him. But, if those Scottish troops were occupied by another claimant up in Scotland, both that claimant and Monmouth had a chance. The Scottish claimant to the throne was Archibald Campbell. Earl of Argyle. Argyle was well-funded. He had Venetian and Dutch nobility behind him, alongside a number of Scottish lords and even the philosopher John Locke. With all of that money, Argyle bought muskets and pikes and breastplates and three ships. He had enough armaments for twenty thousand men, but he only had three hundred at the moment. Now, the two groups of rebels, those behind Monmouth and those behind Argyle, had a plan that involved working together and careful timing. Argyle would sail first to land in southern Scotland. There, he would gather troops to his cause and, you know, take a few castles. Meanwhile, King James would hopefully begin to muster his army in England and march north. At that point, the Duke of Monmouth would make landfall in southern England and take London. And at that point, King James would have a tough decision to make. He could continue on north to defeat Argyle, but that would let Monmouth secure his hold on England. Or he could march south, but he would lose Scotland. Or he could split his forces and fight both, But whatever way he chose, Monmouth and Argyle would be able to support each other. They could eradicate James' army and win the day. But we need to realize how fast all of this was happening. In March 1685, the King of England, Charles II, passed away. In April, James was crowned, and in May, Monmouth and Argyle set sail. This was moving at lightning speed. Now, Argyle made landfall in a Covenanter stronghold in southern Scotland. He had allies around him who hosted his forces, and Argyle sent out a fiery cross. That was a symbol that he sent to lords all over the realm that were calling on Presbyterian, Covenanter, Scottish lords to rally to his side. Argyle waited, and he waited. Only 80 men arrived from his call, and Argyle was expecting more than that. You know the line from groundskeeper Willie that goes something like, Brothers and sisters are natural enemies, like Englishmen and Scots, or Welshmen and Scots, or Japanese and Scots, or Scots and other Scots, damn Scots, they ruined Scotland. You Scots sure are a contentious people. You just made an enemy for life! Well, it kind of proves true here. The Scottish were divided between Catholic Royalists and Protestants. The Protestants were divided between Loyalists and Covenanters. The Covenanters were divided between Highlander and Lowlander, and they were all divided by clan. Still, though... Argyle held out long enough for several lords to muster armies and bring his forces up to about 2,500 men. However, many of those men were Highlanders, and they were currently in the lands of the Lowlanders, with whom they had centuries of animosity. The Highlanders were busy terrorizing their Lowland allies, The Lowlanders would normally have been sympathetic to this cause. They had a history of joining up with Covenanter rebellions, but they decided not to join the force that was busy stealing their food and raping their women. Argyle's officers naturally disciplined the Highlanders behind these offenses, which led to the Highlanders deserting their Lowland allies. Lots of them deserted. About 500 at first, but still, they had about 2,000 men which could win skirmishes with local militias. They had the ability to run, to maneuver, and eventually, hopefully, bring King James north. The plan, if only Argyle could hold out, was still in motion. They still had a chance, but Argyle could not hold out. His soldiers didn't care about the plan. What they wanted was the opportunity to kill Englishmen. They wanted a big, decisive victory. His lieutenants engaged the enemy. This rebellion, Argyle's uprising, just split apart into separate, smaller rebellions. Their army broke apart and was defeated by local militias. By 20th June, Argyle was in Edinburgh in chains and King James never even had to lift a finger. This did not bode well for Monmouth, and he might have waited, he might have gone back to the drawing board, you know, not invaded England here, if only he had received word of Argyle's failure in time. But he was already in England when he learned of Argyle's failure, and before he could turn around and return to the Netherlands, the Royal Navy captured his ships. James Scott, Even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. void, prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, all. Eric Rivenus with the most notorious podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers, to Gilded Age murder, to gangsters, to fires, to pirates, to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. However, Monmouth was much better prepared than Argyle had been. He was better funded than Argyle had been. He had those same Dutch and Venetian supporters, but he also had support from all across England. He had more men and more guns. He had more horses. He even had light artillery. And he had more allies. He landed in Dorset, in the West Country, and there were allies there. The West Country, and the Welsh just up to the north, were usually happy to join a rebellion against the crown when the opportunity presented itself, and if the plan in Scotland had gone as it was intended to, the Northern Army would be occupied. Monmouth would rally the entire West against London. Instead, King James lazily read over reports of the defeated uprising in Scotland and planned exactly how he was going to crush his nephew. King James was even better funded than Monmouth, which, you know, is to be expected. He is the king, after all. But most of his money was not coming from taxes or parliament. Most of it came from King Louis XIV of France. The French had a huge fund set aside for James for just this situation. Now, all this time, Monmouth was busy defeating a few local militias, and, you know, victories do gather recruits. Men were rallying to his banner, including a young Daniel Defoe, along with others, as we'll see. Victory brings soldiers in, and at the height of his strength, Monmouth had about 6,000 men. However, King James was a military man. He was not going to give the rebels a chance to capitalize on their victories. Royalist forces began to converge on the West Country. They occupied castles and valuable river crossings. They cut Monmouth off from the rest of England. They cut off his retreat, and Monmouth realized that he was trapped he was forced into the very same swamp in which Alfred the Great had taken refuge centuries before. I imagine that there were some great speeches given in those marshes, speeches rallying the men with tales of England's mythic founding father, Alfred the Great. But speeches weren't going to win a war. In fact, nothing was going to win this war for the Duke of Monmouth. Royalist forces surrounded him and pushed him into a battle ...at a place called Sedgemoor, The Battle of Sedgemoor is often claimed to be the last battle fought on English soil. Now, that's not true. But it's become one of those kind of mythical claims... ...that historians will bend over backwards not to contradict. The Jacobite rebellions that are still to come... ...no battles, just skirmishes, riots merely. The Battle of Britain, well, that was fought above English soil. You know, you get the idea. The Battle of Sedgemoor wasn't particularly interesting from a military history perspective. Monmouth was never going to win. Maybe as many as 300 men were killed before his army broke. 500 more were captured during the battle, and in the wake of the fighting, 500 more were captured. And then, after the battle, roving bands of royalist horsemen scoured the countryside and killed more than 1,200 more. Most of those that were killed were found hiding in fields or ditches. Charles Scott, Duke of Monmouth, bastard son of the king, was spotted a week later, pocketing peas, wearing rags in a farmer's field. Monmouth was taken to London, where, after several blows of the headsman's axe, he was executed. King James' actions in the wake of these two rebellions were... Distressing. Let's begin with the bloody assizes. The assizes were a traveling court with five magistrates that was overseen by Chief Justice George Jeffries. I'm reading a book about the Salem witch trials right now. And actually, the court, this traveling court under George Jeffries, looked kind of like the traveling courts that engaged in witch trials. Jeffreys and his lesser judges had a month to travel through the entire West Country to hear over 1,500 cases of those who were accused of high treason. And not just those who had fought in the rebellion. There was no legal distinction between those who actively took up arms against the king and those who sheltered or fed the rebels. The first notable execution in the bloody assizes was an elderly woman a woman who had fed and sheltered soldiers she was sentenced as per the law to burn at the stake but the judge who heard her case was not a monster that was far too horrible instead they just cut off her head at one point 150 people were killed in a single day in a single city that was intended to send a message and it did but most of those killed were old they were poor they were weak The rich didn't face the hangman, they were fined, that's what happened to Daniel Defoe, and the able-bodied, well, they were sent off to serve as slaves. You can call them indentured servants if you want to, but they were never going to buy their freedom. And where were they sent? Naturally, the West Indies, almost exclusively the West Indies. There were 800 or so young men and women that after this rebellion were sent off to Jamaica where they were definitely not going to kill their masters and escape on a pirate ship to sail for Madagascar. And you know, I know some people aren't crazy about these history-heavy episodes. Politics and religion aren't exactly as exciting as pirate stories, but this right here is why we need to talk about the politics. The most famous pirates, Blackbeard, Charles Vane, Black Sam Bellamy, well, they were all too young to be involved in the rebellion, but they had fathers and brothers who were. And the older pirates in Nassau, the ones who taught Blackbeard and Charles Vane everything they knew, many of them were fighting here, in Monmouth's Rebellion. Henry Avery was absolutely sailing during this period. Now, exactly where he was at this time is disputed, he might already have been roving the West Indies. Daniel Defoe would later suggest he was sailing under Captains Sawkins and Sharp on the Pacific Adventure. But maybe he was fighting in this rebellion. It's not impossible. And there's just something I love about Daniel Defoe, who would go on years later to write a fictional series of letters by Captain Avery, There's something I love about Defoe walking past a young Henry Avery in the camp of Monmouth without having any idea who he was. The bloody assizes were a bad look for the king, but his next moves, well, Winston Churchill wrote of this era, quote, James was now at the height of his power. The defeat of the rebels and the prevention of another civil war had procured a nationwide rally to the crown. Of this he took immediate advantage. As soon as Jeffreys' campaign was ended, he proposed the repeal of the Test Act and the Habeas Corpus Act. Chief Justice Jeffreys, red-handed from the bloody assizes, was made Lord Chancellor. The loyal Parliament, though they were loyal, was still mostly Anglican. Word was they would not approve these repeals. So Churchill goes on, On November twenty, he suddenly appeared before the House of Lords summoned the commons to the bar, and prorogued the parliament. It never met again while he was king, End quote. The king elected instead to rule by military dictatorship. There was virtually no opposition to him in England. James replaced magistrates and justices with Catholics. He stacked the army and the navy with Catholic officers, and anybody who had power to stand against the king was now either dead or fled. The intellectual elite was all that was left of the opposition. These literati chronicled the exploits of the king in great detail, and they began with a sudden and surprising appearance of 15,000 troops in the countryside outside of London. This was the largest standing peacetime army that England had ever seen. The people were shocked. James sent them out ostensibly to hunt rebels, quote-unquote, but actually he just garrisoned them all around England to act as his personal police force. This was the kind of thing that was unthinkable for any king in the history of England. You know, on moral grounds, sure, but really more on financial grounds. I doubt that there was any English king ever that could have afforded something like this. However, King Louis XIV of France was funding this effort by King James, He was attempting to secure a strong ally and a Catholic England. This was the point at which the political class, the educated elite of England, began to lose faith in King James II. This was the height of the killing time up in Scotland. That was the time in which Catholics were given full freedom of religion, but Presbyterians were killed in droves. This was the point at which even some loyal Scots began to lose faith in King James. And King James was officially the head of the Anglican Church. That was part of his role as king. No one really expected him to take part in that, as he was a Catholic after all, but he went several steps farther. The king was heard saying several times that he saw it as his duty to re-establish Roman Catholicism in England. Now, most believe that what he meant by that was a sincere wish for Roman Catholicism to stand equal to Anglicanism, but some of the more anti-James contemporaries and historians believe that he meant superior Roman Catholicism. James established Catholic schools in London, and then he commandeered four formerly Anglican sites for four Catholic orders, St. James' Church, which had only been completed a year prior and was named for King James' grandfather, James I, but, you know, kind of for the current king, well, that was given over to the Benedictines. The Savoy, the famous hotel, had been an Anglican hospital since the time of Henry VIII. That was given over to the Jesuits, who also opened one of the Catholic schools. The Carmelites and the Franciscans had their own lodgings in famed London institutions. James had his own personal Jesuit confessor. Now, that's by no means out of the ordinary for a Catholic monarch. But this confessor, well, he was given the former lodgings of the Archbishop of Canterbury. That was a great offense. And, in fact, a lot of Anglican priests began to wonder if, in fact, this man was supposed to be their new archbishop, He wasn't, but it was a confusing time. Remember? Remember the 5th of November? The gunpowder treason and plot? I see no reason the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot, but King James certainly did. He outlawed any memorial or celebration on 5th November. Anyone who was seen burning an effigy of the Pope, which was the tradition, they were ordered to be executed. Within a year, five spots on the Privy Council were held by Roman Catholics and government posts, it was noted, were being given almost exclusively to Catholic officials. This was the point at which the Church of England began to lose faith in King James. And this was all happening astonishingly quickly. It was in under two years that all of these moves were made. And change was to be expected. Whenever a new cane came in, they were going to implement their own policies, especially when it was an adult with the political and military acumen to see them through. And I could spend episodes upon episodes on the many, many controversies in England during King James' reign. For example, the fight over King James' appointment of a Catholic headmaster at Oxford. But I won't do that. However, we should mention James' response to the protest over that appointment. He said, quote, "...go home, get you gone, know I am your king, I will be obeyed, and I command you to be gone." End quote. And at this point, a smart king would ease up. They would call a parliament, they would pass a few laws to soothe the people. And, you know, James wasn't dumb, he was arrogant, but he did decide to make a move that might appease his people. Now, this wasn't a concession. He didn't make concessions after all, but maybe it was a compromise. In 1687, King James passed an indulgence called the Declaration for Liberty and Conscience. It looked very much like the indulgence that had been passed by his brother. It granted religious liberty to Catholics and Protestant nonconformists. But it didn't have the intended effect james ordered the declaration read from every pulpit in england nearly every clergyman in the country completely ignored him in london one bishop did begin to read the indulgence and the entire congregation stood up and walked out james confessor and james confessor was kind of an arch villain to the people of england at this point he was taking a lot of the heat for james policies but he said that the clergy, after this affront, should, quote, be made to eat their own dung, end quote. The Archbishop of Canterbury, along with six other high-ranking bishops in the Anglican Church, petitioned the king to withdraw this indulgence. And James responded to them, quote, This is a great surprise to me. I did not expect this from your church, especially from some of you. This is a standard of rebellion, end quote. James was growing agitated over the open hostility he faced, and it was showing. He had those bishops, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, imprisoned. They were going to stand trial for treason. This became all the talk in the local coffee shops for days and days. But then, at the height of this controversy, a rumor began to spread through the coffee houses. The Queen, Mary of Modena was with child. An heir would cement the Catholic rule of England, and that would not be tolerated. See, at the moment, James' daughter Mary was set to take the throne. All of this Catholic kerfuffle could be endured if it meant that a proper Protestant queen was going to take the throne. Remember the last time we had one of those? Those were the Elizabethan days, the halcyon days of England's burgeoning empire. But... If James had a son, all of that would change. And make no mistake here, Mary was paying very close attention, as was her husband, William of Orange. William's personal envoy to the English court was one Everhard von Weed d'Eichfeldt. He had been an ambassador to King Charles II, and he attempted to serve the same role with James by securing James' aid against Louis Fourteenth of France, James, though, soundly refused. He kicked Dieichwelt out of his court, and Dieichwelt received new orders. He stopped spending time at court and started spending his time in coffee shops. What, can't a Dutch guy hang out with his friends and have a cup of coffee without being accused of working to undermine the king? And James went so far, and this wasn't all because of dykevelt but James started closing coffee shops and censoring publishers. But that didn't hinder dykevelt He was busy rallying the opposition against King James, and he was sowing the seeds of a conspiracy. The opposition leaders, those that were left in England, learned a complex series of codes and secret phrases from dykevelt They used invisible ink to include secret messages in the spaces between words. They were carrying letters from England to the Netherlands. It was actually the English mail service that carried these letters every day. They informed William and Mary of every move that King James made. William had many ships making near constant trips across the channel just to carry these letters. They kept him almost up to the minute. Now, James knew about these letters. He knew there was a conspiracy brewing, but the opposition was growing, thanks in large part to Dykvelt's efforts, and there were so many letters traveling south that James found himself powerless to do anything about them. At one point, desperate to stop these reports from reaching the Netherlands, James II stopped the entire English mail service. He did so at a key moment in his reign. On 10th June, 1688, Queen Mary gave birth to a son. His name was James Francis Edward Stuart, and he was supposed to become King James III of England. We'll be hearing a lot more from him in the future, but there was a lot of controversy surrounding the birth of James Francis Edward Stuart. The rumor was that this was not actually King James' son nor was it Mary of Modena's son. The rumor was that this pregnancy was a sham. Mary had been pretending the whole time, and this baby, well, it was just so convenient, it appeared at this key turning point in James' reign, they were saying that it had been smuggled in in a bedpan or maybe a brazier. Now that wasn't true, but the rumor did have legs in large part because the birth of King James' son coincided with two other major events. First, those bishops that had been arrested for protesting the indulgence, they were acquitted on all charges. This was met with cheers and parades. There was one group of celebrants that was even seen burning an effigy of the royal family. More concerningly, his army in London was also seen celebrating the acquittal. With reports like that, wouldn't a sudden and surprising royal baby that would probably garner you a lot of support, wouldn't that be a very helpful thing to have? But more important than the acquittal, and arguably for the history of England more important than the birth of King James' son, James had finalized a naval agreement with King Louis of France. In that agreement, France would finance an English Royal Naval Squadron in the English Channel that would guard French shores against Dutch invasion. Now, at this moment, England and France did not officially have a military alliance. And we're going to have to talk about France's role in all of this at a later date. But right now, they were preparing for war. War with the Netherlands. And the Netherlands was preparing also. But England was the wild card. However, this naval agreement made it look very much like James was beginning to think about an outright alliance with France, and William could not and would not allow that. It was at this point that a coalition of seven powerful English lords came to William and Mary to try to talk them into taking direct action in England. Those seven lords included not only some of the Whig leadership like Shaftesbury, but also the Bishop of London, who was himself a Tory leader, and Lord Danby. This was a serious coalition. This coalition wrote a letter, signed by all seven, that invited Mary Stuart to come to England and claim the throne. All seven of them, who had substantial military strength between them, agreed to support Mary if her husband William would land an army on English soil. Now William and Mary, originally, of course, demurred, They would not invade the home of Mary's own father, but when they were pressed, they agreed that they would come to England as a peacekeeping force in this troubled time. The latter part of the summer of 1688 was spent securing money and support from English lords, and it became clear that the support for this peacekeeping force was substantial. A month after the birth of his son, James II was receiving word from France that William of Orange was preparing an invasion. Now James attempted to secure his support in England. He did so by calling for a parliament. The people had been clamoring for a parliament for months now, but this was too little too late. They prepared to hold elections, but everybody knew what was coming here. War was coming. Fire and blood, right? And on 22nd September... The Dutch fleet began to set sail. The first ships carried a few soldiers, but only enough to establish a small base. The ships that followed carried thousands and thousands of copies of a declaration of intent. This declaration of intent informed the people of England that William was not here to claim the throne. He was merely here to enforce a lawful election of the parliament and to investigate the legitimacy of his nephew to sit the English throne. This was a conceit that allowed William to land troops without violating international law and invading the home of one of his allies. Now that those declarations of intent were filtering throughout the country, though, the lords who had already agreed to support William and Mary under the table could spontaneously decide to march on the Dutch camp, to keep them in check, you know. It's almost embarrassing. James absolutely had the opportunity to stop the Dutch crossing at any moment, but he'd made that naval agreement with King Louis. His royal squadron in the Channel was busy defending French soil, and that left his own shores vulnerable. By 8th October 1688, the Dutch crossing was complete. Aside from William and Mary, they were both still in the Netherlands, and they were still there because this was not an invasion. This was a peacekeeping force. Those lords who had spontaneously decided to besiege the invading force, well, certainly they weren't there to join them, of course. That would be treason. They just kept the Dutch in their camp, made sure they weren't moving into the countryside. But William had 12,000 men in England, and at least 3,000 Englishmen guarded his encampment. King James II of England, on the other hand, nominally had 19,000. That's an advantage of 4,000 more troops, and he went so far as to pull back from London to secure a better military position. King Louis of France even offered to send an expeditionary force to England that would bolster his numbers, but King James refused Louis. And I give him all the credit in the world here. James could have easily defeated William with that aid from France. But that would mean not only civil war between Englishmen, that would mean international war between France and the Netherlands on English soil. That would mean a charnel house in England. And King James was not willing to do that to his people. You know, he'd seen war, and he didn't want to bring it back. But then distressing word began to arrive at King James' doorstep, London was an uprising. A mob had raised itself against the Catholics in the capital, and the army in London was laying down their arms. No, wait, new word had come. The army was joining the rioters. London was lost to King James, and William's army hadn't even moved. So James set out to retake London, but everywhere he went he found himself frustrated. He received new word at every stop that lords and armies that had previously been loyal to him had turned on him. He realized that he had no path to London without passing right by the Dutch encampment or fighting his way through his own soldiers. It was at this point that King James II of England dressed his wife up as a laundress and sent her across the Channel in a nondescript ship so she could hide in France. "'Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I see no reason the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot.'" King James may see a reason it should have been forgotten, but his daughter, Mary Stuart, had not forgotten. She sent her husband across the Channel on the 4th of November, and on 5th November, 1688, William III, Prince of Orange, landed on English soil. An auspicious day. Across the land, the people of England burned effigies of Guy Fawkes, of the Pope, and of King James of England. James himself began to suffer nosebleeds and fits. His hysteria was rising, and his army knew it. They began to desert the king. Some of them merely went home, but others went over to the side of William III. William began his slow procession through the English countryside toward London. This was not the procession of a king, but it was beginning to look a lot like one. Still, he told every lord he met that he was not here to claim the throne. If any one were to have it other than the rightful king, James II, it would be his wife. But James knew that he had lost. He fled south for France. William arrived in London around the time that King James arrived in France, and he secured the peace there. The riots were quelled. He told the people of London that he was not here to claim the throne. He would not take it, but he also told them that his wife, Mary Stuart, was preparing to cross the Channel herself. William, as the peacekeeper he was, oversaw the election of a new parliament. Not as a monarch, he wasn't king. A monarch was the only person with the legal authority to call a parliament, so this was not called a parliament, it was called a convention. Later on, of course, it would be called the convention parliament. But at the moment, this was still just a convention called by a regent, maybe. In the tradition of the great Roman Empire of old, the senators, or, you know, the peers of the convention, begged William to take the throne of England, and in the tradition of the emperors of old, William Third demurred. He was waiting for his wife to cross the Channel and make her way to London. Ostensibly, she arrived to inform her husband of her father's flight to France. "'Oh no,' said William, "'England is without a monarch.' "'Dear wife, what are we mere peacekeepers and regents to do?' The lords, spontaneously, of course, offered the throne to Mary Stuart. But she demurred her father was the rightful king. "'Oh, no,' the lords replied, "'he cannot be king. "'They had passed an exclusion bill in the absence of King James.' Again, though, Mary Stuart demurred. She was but only a weak-willed woman, not right for the throne of England.' But the lords insisted, please take the throne, and Mary said, only if you make my husband co-monarch to make up for the failings of my sex, and so it was. Mary and William were made co-monarchs of England. A bloodless revolution had taken place, truly a glorious revolution, Of course, that was all nonsense. This was all staged-managed window-dressing. There would be plenty of blood to go around in the years to come. But for now, William and Mary were co-monarchs of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, as well as the most powerful nobles in the Dutch Empire. Next time, we're going to peek behind the curtain. To See what actually happened in the Glorious Revolution, and we're going to look at the international impact of the revolution and how that would impact, finally, how that would impact the world of the pirates. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, either by becoming a patron on Patreon or leaving us a review or a rating, wherever it is you listen to the show. And I should note that we're on Spotify now for any of our listeners that would prefer to listen there and also everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. So thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you really should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, YouTube, or Patreon. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.